Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves on future fuels? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Ian Adams, who is a senior fellow with the R Street Institute. Ian is responsible for coordinating R Street's insurance research and outreach, as well as overseeing matters related to next generation transportation. He's also a frequent commentator on the disruptive impact of burgeoning technologies on law and regulation. Ian joined R Street uh, in January 2017. He actually rejoined R Street January 2017, and he was most recently a public policy associate at the international law firm of Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe LLP. Earlier in his career, Ian was a Jesse M. Unra Assembly Fellow with the Office of California State Assemblyman Kurt Hegman. And he served as a legal extern with the office of the Oregon State Representative Bruce Hanna. Ian, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. So before we get into the questions um, that I want to ask you about with some of the work you've been doing in the transportation area, um, and for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about what the R Street Institute is, how it was formed? Um, what its key mission is, and what your primary objectives are in the next few years as it regards um, transportation, transport. Yeah. Well, the R Street Institute, we are a free market think tank. We are coming up on our fifth anniversary. And the motto of R Street is free markets, real solutions. And so while we are free marketers who tend to be more libertarian in our persuasion, um, we take an approach that is firmly grounded in the policy conversation that is going on at the time. So, for instance, uh, our street has a focus in the states as well as at the federal level. Part of that has to do with the fact that we do focus on insurance, which is regulated at the state level. And we've got offices in California. We've got offices in Texas. We've got offices in Florida. And so, Obviously, as as the folks in those various locations engage on issues, um, they engage where the conversation is in their state. So clearly in Texas, it's going to be a little further to the right than it is out in California. Um, so that's the first thing we attempt to do at our street is, is we attempt to be relevant and try to bring the most free market perspective that is uh, feasible to any given policy discussion. I should say that our president, Eli Lehrer, came from the Heartland Institute, which was a think tank in uh, Chicago. He ran the insurance branch of the Heartland Institute. But when Heartland sort of moved in a different direction with some of its climate-related policies, Eli decided that it was time to found a different organization. And so that is that is where our street got its start, which was on the, on the uh, environment and insurance side of things. And since then, we've grown into a think tank that covers all kinds of different areas. We cover technology very heavily, and we have an exciting uh, governance project, which is focused on bringing out the real power of the legislative branch, which uh, in these exciting times has, has actually been um, 
probably one of one of the areas though that I'm not working in that I follow most closely just because there's a, seems to be a competition between the various branches. Now, as far as our agenda moving forward in the next few years when it comes to energy and transportation, I think a lot of our focus is going to be on uh, self-driving vehicles, automated vehicles, and ensuring that we have a regulatory framework that that matches the exciting development of the technology and does not hinder it or encumber it in some way. That said, we we also work heavily in the energy space. Uh, we we advocate in our thoughts and in our writing for a revenue neutral carbon tax, and uh, we also work on finding non subsidized ways for clean energy to make it onto the market. So that's sort of how I came to this project because I work in uh, in autonomous vehicles and and work in building coalitions on that front on the right and realized that we kept bumping into these questions about cafe standards, that that was a really alive issue in the automotive industry. And so that's what that's what piqued my interest. And that's what started this project at R Street. So what that's exactly what I want to ask you about, because you came to my attention one shiny day when I was enjoying my coffee and reading The Hill, and I came across this op-ed written by you. And uh, the op-ed was about CAFE. So I want to quote something that you said and, and, and talk to you a little bit about your thoughts about uh, what you said in the op-ed, but also CAFE in general. But just for the listener's benefit, and I'm gonna, going to link the op-ed uh, for listeners so that they can read it if they want to. You said, if ever there were a moment to reconsider the status quo, this is it. Assuming that emission standards are here to stay, a better approach may be to replace CAFE altogether. In its place, policymakers should consider a unified supply-side solution, which would be far easier to administer. A supply-side framework would only would require a method to measure emissions and an emissions target, both of which already exist. The only additional needed element is a system of tax incentives to reward companies whose fleets outperform the target. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the supply side solution and um, and how would the method to measure emissions work, especially when there's been so much controversy, and, and I'm not sure if you're following this over real world versus lab testing of emissions and, and fuel, fuel economy. And my third question, so this is a three-part question, have you had any reaction or interest in this by either EPA or the Trump administration? So we'll, we'll start there. Well, um, let me let me make sure I can and try to keep these all straight in my head. Um, the the idea for the op-ed really came from um, sort of a from a, a place of relative naivete, uh, as you as, as listeners can pick up from my uh, from my bio. It's not as though I have a, a a deep background in this. I've just always been interested in cars, and so. I've followed CAFE, I've followed the, the One National Program, I've followed just this increasingly labyrinthian approach to um, both emissions and fuel economy regulation after, um, after the, the decision of Massachusetts v. EPA back in 2007. And, and the program just seemed to me to, to really overcomplicate things, because if you're a free marketer, what you want to what you want to see are incentives aligned correctly. And so the idea with a supply side solution is to not punish those who pollute or fail to hit a standard. 
because you could you could base this on uh, fuel economy efficiency, or you could base this on emissions. It doesn't it doesn't really matter how you hit how you set the target. What matters is how uh, regulated entities interact with that target, because when the target is used to punish entities, the target begins to act as both a floor and a ceiling. Right? There are no economic incentives few economic incentives to really do better than that target. Whereas if you move to a supply side solution that allows companies and regulated entities to be awarded for overcompliance with a given target, then they really have a business reason to make more efficient vehicles. And so in practice, the way that I suggest you reward a company for overachieving would be to slightly cut their taxes on uh, capital gains, which are quite high in the United States, but to do so on a really on a on a steep grade, right? So you have a long a long grade from the target moving down, and based on either emissions or the corporate average fuel economy, right? As you go down, and the company has has higher and higher uh, efficiency. Their 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 uh, their tax rate is reduced, which in turn reduces the cost of their capital um, because it makes it more attractive to investors. And so, by making by making the investment in these companies that are greener more attractive to investors, those companies are able to offer more for less because their cost of capital is less, and they they do have more growth as a result of that, which could lead to a scenario. And I should say, I'm not an economist could lead to a scenario where you have vehicles from cleaner manufacturers that are able to offer relatively more content for the same money as another vehicle from a manufacturer that opts to be less efficient. So so that's sort of the general idea. I just got the sense that the incentives were a little backward and that the system in terms of paying for compliance was becoming really quite onerous. So so that that was my approach. Since since the op-eds come out, I've had a a range of opinions from you know well you you don't know what you're talking about to you know it's kind of neat that someone has a new perspective on this. Nothing from the Trump administration, but I should say that on April 14th, I'm going to be hosting a panel in which we will be discussing a forthcoming paper that sort of mirrors the conversation uh, that, that was in the op-ed and, and uh, fleshes out further the ideas involved. And that will be over lunch. I'm going to have uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Marlo Lewis there, Chris Nevers, vice president um, at the Auto Alliance, Rod Richardson from the Grace Richardson Fund, and Wayne Weingarten from the Pacific Research Institute on Capitol Hill. I should uh, I should say the, the link is on our website. And we're going to go further into these issues and discuss how they interact with the Trump administration's uh, announcement in Michigan. So there's a long answer, a little discursive, but I hope I covered most of those questions. You did. So um, sometimes, you know, what you said, you know, oh, one of the reactions is, you know, oh, you don't know what you're talking about to, oh, this is really interesting. Sometimes it seems um, you need to be a little bit of out of an outsider to kind of bring in a fresh perspective. So maybe that's part of the the, the reaction that you're getting, and that's what actually got my attention. Um, is I had never seen an idea put out there that was quite like what you've you've proposed before, and that's why I thought it was so so interesting to you know to explore. 
Well, yeah, and it's part of a larger initiative. So the R Street Institute has been working with this organization, the Grace Richardson Fund, to look at an idea called clean tax cuts. And the thought is, be it in the automotive sector, be it in energy production, even in finance with with bonds, you can add tax cuts, supply side drivers to encourage more efficient behavior. Some prefer to call it greener behavior, but at the end of the day, what we're seeking here is efficiency to drive down costs for consumers and the economy as a whole. And it is new and it is revolutionary and we haven't run all the numbers yet, but it's something where it just seemed like it was it was time to start having this discussion because we're at a really interesting point with the Trump administration addressing these issues to have the conversation. So that was the idea. So how do you see fuel economy standards playing out? So as you know, um, the Trump administration has announced that they're going to reopen the midterm review and they'll go from there. And I think there's some expectation from some that this means that the standards will be totally rolled back and there are those that aren't so sure. So what's your view? How do you see the, this issue playing out based on what you know, seen and experienced uh, to date Sure. I, well, w- what struck me is just the complexity of the administrative law question in play here. And, and maybe that's just where I go and run and hide as an attorney. But my goodness, the question is when the Obama administration acted in the last seven days before the, the transfer of power, what exactly was the nature of their action? And dependent upon the nature of their action, what what sort of what sort of reaction from the Trump administration will be most most appropriate? So I will I will be closely following the legal challenges, but I tend to think that you will see, if not a rollback, then certainly a pause in this approach, right? Because the Trump administration stressed that uh, the midterm review would sort of get back on its original schedule, and we would see some results in 2018, and presumably. An EPA under the Trump administration will will reach a different outcome. But of course, that's contingent upon how all the legal wrangling works itself out. So I I will be an an interested observer, but I, I don't think I have a clear sense of exactly where this will end up. Well, that brings me back to um, uh, your supply side solution idea. Do you think that that's something that begin to gain traction? Because I could see this idea being very attractive in a Trump administration. Well, I certainly hope so. And if we ever do get through healthcare reform, and I should say we're we're recording this on on a Friday when a vote is supposed to take place. <laughs> um, um, but as as you know, the next the next which major- was supposed to take place yesterday, <laughs> right, actually, right. but you know, never you mind. <laughs> exactly. Um, if if they ever do get through healthcare, the next big issue on um, the House House Republican agenda is tax reform, and so you've got clean tax cuts and the supply side proposal at an interesting point overlapping with lots of administration priorities. So you've got the rollback of the midterm review, or at least the reevaluation of the midterm review, you've got a desire to readdress tax policy, and you've got a desire on the outside to sort of potentially monkey with some tariffs um, with the border adjustment tax. And so this sort of falls right in the middle of all of that, because this is a good way, functionally reducing taxes, but doing so in a way that they could pay for themselves just based on the economic activity that they would be able to generate. 
Now, admittedly, the Trump administration is not all that concerned with climate change or the effects of climate change. At least that's what I perceive to be the case. Um, but they're very, they're very concerned about consumers, consumers, you know, having reasonably priced products available to them. And so this would be a great way of improving vehicle efficiency, of cutting taxes and spurring economic growth. So that's why we're going to keep looking into it. And, and hopefully as we start to attach numbers to it, we'll be able to, we'll be able to explain to policymakers the advantages that uh, such an approach can, can hold. So I want to turn to your work in um, autonomous mobility. Can you talk about what R Street is uh, is doing in that area? And how do you see this industry evolving over the next uh, five to 10 years? And any any picks on who might win this race? I mean, the, the Googles, the GMs, you know, the, the BMWs, the Ubers. Tammy, I think ultimately the winners of the race will be those of us who actually uh, have an opportunity to operate and ride in the vehicles. Um, that's, that, that was sort of my starting point in coming to this, that here we are, the, the wealthiest country in the world, and we've just sort of accepted that roughly 40,000 deaths a year on our roads, that that number is somehow acceptable. And the number of collisions, the number of accidents is, is far higher. And the, the cost in terms of civil liability on top of it all is, is greater and so this is just this struck me as an area where there is a straightforward technological solution that is waiting in the wings to be deployed, and yet there are some legacy regulatory barriers standing in its way. So that's how R Street got engaged in the project, how I got engaged in the project. I worked in the California legislature at a time when the state decided to pass legislation to uh, give the California DMV authority to begin regulating this technology. And, and the, the folks backing the legislation at the time thought it was necessary to allow these vehicles on the road. And, you know, there's some question about that, but that's ancient history because now we've got states off to the races in attempting to regulate these vehicles. And we've got the federal government, the, the NHTSA on the other side, also looking to regulate these vehicles. And so it's been a really very interesting road to travel down as NHTSA has uh, opted to offer non-binding guidance and the states have uh, in fits and starts over-regulated as California proposed to do in some draft regulations by saying the vehicles have to have a steering wheel and other states have gone other directions to be very, very permissive, like for instance, Nevada. So our work has been focused on trying to ensure that regulators don't inadvertently quash the development and deployment of the technology. For instance, in Massachusetts right now, there's a bill pending that would tax autonomous vehicles on a per mile basis. Now, I can't think of a much worse incentive for the deployment of the technology. Yeah. So that's where we've been focused. Um, and I wonder sh- who lobbied for that. <laughs> uh, I should say Yikes. we're also um, members of the uh, self-driving coalition for safer street. Uh, we're the, the think tank partner. So we work very closely with the members of that coalition, including Waymo, Uber, Lyft, Ford, and Volvo to ensure that, that the free market perspective is really making its way out there to the state in a way that actually makes sense to policymakers. So I want to ask you, so you had another op-ed in The Hill 
this one was was actually on uh, autonomous uh, mobility. Well, actually, actually, I should say before I before I ask you the question, I think that's really interesting what you're getting into with respect to, um, you know, the death toll in driving. I mean, obviously, that's not an area that I or the listeners or or my readers or clients um, really cover because we're we're on the you know environment side. So our concern is uh, climate change and uh, reducing air pollution and creating uh, fuels and and vehicle technologies that ad- address those issues. So the, so road deaths are a little bit out of our area, but it's really a huge issue here in the U.S. and also you know, around the world. And um, it's, it's really um, amazing to, to, to see that. And I can see that really being a, a driver, in addition to what some people are saying with the, you know, with, with electric vehicles, coupled with the autonomous, uh, you know, mobility, um, and ride sharing, you know, reducing air pollution, reducing road deaths, you know, I mean, it, it, it does have this uh, really game changing potential in these areas and also, you know, potential huge impact to, to energy demand as well. Do you have any, any comment on, on that aspect of it? I think you're absolutely right. And I, I probably was remiss in mentioning some of those environmental benefits, which really could be transformative because, of course, the technology in some of its more sophisticated iterations will be able to, for instance, platoon. So you'll have you'll have autonomous vehicles that are following uh, within inches of one another, so they don't have the same drag coefficient as they're going down the road, and we're not going to have to use as much power to move those vehicles as a result. So there will be net efficiency benefits that we enjoy almost right off of the bat, to say nothing of the fact that uh, with ride-sharing, vehicles will be utilized more fully. Um, more of the time, they'll be on the road, they'll be picking people up, and they'll just be used a lot more. And as a result, you won't have a bunch of metal sitting around unused, uh, which will also also have a positive impact on the environment. So it's it's a huge part of it. And, and as you say, with electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles are really well positioned to take advantage of electric vehicle technology. GM is obviously a big believer in that as a big-time investor in Lyft and their new Chevy Bolts that are coming out with the 230-odd miles of range. Um, there's a reason that they're using that vehicle as their autonomous vehicle platform, because once these vehicles have exhausted their charge, they're able to go seek another charge and then get back out on the road as, as soon as possible. And they can do it on their own, right? They don't have to worry about any of the sort of logistical challenges associated with autonomous autonomous fueling involving liquid. So, it's it's really exciting, and I think you're right. You know, obviously the death toll is is attention grabbing, but we shouldn't lose track of the environmental benefits either. So I want to go back to I was just about to ask you about another op-ed that you wrote um, on autonomous mobility in the Hill. Another shiny day where I was enjoying my coffee and reading the Hill. <laughs> that was another time. I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm going to ask you the the last two questions that I want to ask you about. So you said in that op-ed, states across the country each have pursued unique and le- unique legislative and regulatory paths. To date, at least 60 bills of varying merit have been introduced. That could create a mess of conflicting requirements. What Congress could do instead is help create predictable rules that don't inadvertently thwart future developments. 
Key to this is to stay technology neutral while articulating adaptive and flexible regulatory standards at the federal level to prevent a state-by-state -state patchwork of rules, which you're just talking about. That approach would allow advances in safety to be achieved through experience on the road, which in turn can help inform an evidence-based approach to standard setting. So my quest two questions for you is, you know, given the perpetual gridlock in Congress, um, and really, I, I, how I see it is their really their inability uh, to really, you know, to get things done. Do you see this moving forward? Um, do you see a legislative framework um, coming out of of Congress? And then the the second question that I have is, what do you think? What kind of provisions could you see ending up either in legislation or in a NHTSA rulemaking? Great questions, and uh, the current events on Capitol Hill right now are certainly not uh, likely to engender confidence in anyone in terms of Congress being able to uh, act on an issue like this. But uh, I am optimistic that Congress can take take a step in this place, largely because I think that there is a level of bipartisan interest, and then probably more importantly, interest from the relevant committee chairs in both the House and the Senate to to act in this space. I know they are um, cultivating stakeholder comments aggressively, and they're they're really looking for how they can be of assistance. Because when NHTSA came out with its guidance, they did a lot of things right. Uh, they did a good job of setting out generally what manufacturers should be, should be thinking about. They, in the second section, uh, the state model policy, they did a good job of explaining what is appropriately within the purview of state res, uh, regulation versus federal regulation, um, which is to say what is supposed to be left to the states, or rather what should be left to the states because it is traditionally left to the states, is uh, insurance, liability, licensing, registration, and, and those, those sorts of issues where the federal government is better equipped to regulate motor vehicle safety standards. So the hard parts of the car and the things that are really very expensive to attempt to accommodate on a 50 state level. So what I think Congress could profitably do um, would be to set out in statute to make binding that distinction. Just because currently states are still tinkering around with legislation that I do think bleeds into what is probably more appropriately handled with a federal motor vehicle safety standard. Now, of course, part of the issue is that the average time it takes for NHTSA to actually promulgate one of those is roughly seven years. So that is not a very attractive option. And of course, once it's in place, they're very difficult to modify. And given how quickly this technology is evolving, uh, the last thing we want to do is to see uh, regulation put in place that hampers the development of this technology. So a few things. I think that Congress can and should act to make sure that there is a clear distinction and perhaps limited federal preemption when it comes to federal, uh, when it comes to vehicle safety standards. I think that NHTSA should continue to take a guidance sort of approach to the development of policy for autonomous vehicles and helping the states coordinate their policies. And so that would mean really sort of avoiding the formal rulemaking process unless absolutely necessary. And then third, I think that states should probably be 
a little more circumspect. I know we're coming to the end of state legislative session, so this this advice is is like four months late, um, but should be circumspect in the way that they go about attempting to regulate autonomous vehicles. So, for instance, California recently released finally non-draft proposed regulations of autonomous vehicles, and they're far better than any of the regulations that the state had released before, but they still explicitly defer to the federal government and compliance with the NHTSA's non-binding guidelines as a threshold for getting a testing permit in California. As a regulatory attorney, that has me scratching my head because the guidance is non-binding, did not go through notice and comment rulemaking, and is not very easy to comply with. And in fact, there are no standards for compliance with those those NHTSA standards. So when a company submits for a testing permit or a deployment permit in California and has to represent that they are in compliance with the NHTSA standards, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> and and I have a feeling <laughs> I have a feeling that a lot of the the manufacturers don't either. They're just sort of hoping that the DMV will be permissive in, in its approach. But you can see the problems that begin to develop with these sorts of authorities. And Congress and NHTSA can do a lot to really re- resolve that confusion. And let's hope that that's uh, that's that's where we're headed. I mean, maybe maybe after tax reform. So we'll end it there. That's the show. Uh, Thanks for listening. I want to thank Ian Adams so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. And I hope you come back as research and as your work um, further develops in this area. I'd love to, Tammy. Thank you. Please do us a favor today before you go, will you? Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking in iTunes and also keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on Future Fuels issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. That's the show. Thanks for listening. <music>